Her Excellency Sarah Al-Amiri and the UAE's exciting new mission to the asteroid belt this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, back from vacation with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Sarah last visited Planetary Radio after the launch of the Emirates-Mars mission that is now orbiting the Red Planet. With hopes for hope fulfilled, the United Arab Emirates are taking on an even more ambitious mission. Sarah, who now leads the UAE Space Agency, will tell us about it and provide an update on the science underway above Mars. Got the perfect gift in mind for the space geek in your life? Share it with us, please, and while you're at it, Help the Planetary Society determine the best of all things space in 2021. My colleague Kate Howells will arrive shortly to tell you how. Of course, Bruce Betts will also be here with winners of two space trivia contests and a couple of great random space facts. Scary kitties, that's the Halloween-inspired image of Jupiter's great red spot that tops the October 29 edition of our free newsletter, The Downlink. Think that's scary? Imagine living on a world that circles a black hole or neutron star, as that object vacuums matter from another star. Yeah, it's another exoplanet discovery, but this one stands out for yet another reason. It is 28 million light-years away in the Whirlpool galaxy. There's an artist's impression at planetary.org downlake. We've also got the announcement by Blue Origin, Sierra Space, and other partners of their plan to build a commercial space station. They want to call it Orbital Reef. By the way, as this week's episode is published, SpaceX and NASA have further delayed the launch of four astronauts to the International Space Station. It's due to what's called a minor health problem suffered by one of the crew. Kate Howells is the Planetary Society's Communication Strategy and Canadian Space Policy Advisor. She talked with me a few hours ago from her home near Toronto. Kate, welcome back to the show. Good to have you on. Thank you, Matt. Always a pleasure. We have a couple of things to talk about, both of them ways for uh, people out there listening to us to uh, help out other space fans in this well, I guess it's getting to be the holiday season. Let's talk with one that uh, I hope is becoming uh, a, a tradition uh, from the Planetary Society. Uh, what do you call this? This is the second annual Explorer's Choice Awards from the Planetary Society. So we started this last year and we loved it so much. It went so well that we're going to do it every year. Uh, where we look back over the past year in space science and exploration and get people to vote for their favorite things. So it's kind of like the Reader's Choice Awards that a lot of local newspapers will do where people vote for you know, their favorite restaurant and hairdresser and whatnot, but it's the space version. So folks can vote for their favorite image from the solar system from the past year, their favorite moment, the most exciting moment in planetary science, uh, favorite mission, and at the end of it all, we get to see who the winners are, which is always very exciting, uh, whether you agree with the choices or not. Everybody loves a good competition. And of course, just to be nominated is honor enough, as they say at the Academy Awards. Um, this is really cool. I'm looking at it right now. Tell us how people can find this, and then we'll repeat that again uh, before the end of our conversation. Yes. So if you go to planetary.org slash best of 2021, 
you will find this year's contenders. And of course, we had to make some editorial decisions in uh, what we put out there because we couldn't really have every single image from the solar system or every single moment in exploration. But uh, we have some really good contenders that I think sum up uh, the most exciting things that happened this past year. And it was quite a year. We've got some really good stuff out here. So uh, I definitely in encourage everybody to check it out. Uh, we even added the category of best space meme because Sarah, our wonderful digital community manager who runs our social media channels, has created some, some memes taking familiar formats and making them about space exploration. And we just think those are so delightful. So folks can pick their favorite of that as well. She is so good at that. And I'm looking at these terrific uh, candidate images for best solar system image. There are eight of them. I don't want to prejudice or bias anybody, but I think I would vote for the shadow of ingenuity over the surface of Mars. But you don't have to do that just because <laughs> I'm your host. Uh, no, these are all great. They're, they're really fantastic choices. Um, as people begin to hear this program, uh, this has only been open. I think it's the third day of voting. What has the, the response been so far? We have already had hundreds of people cast their votes, which is just wonderful to see. I think within about three or four hours of launching the voting page and sharing it by email and on our social media pages, I think we already had almost 600 votes. And that was a day ago now. So who knows? I haven't seen the latest tally, but it's in the hundreds, which is fantastic. But that's not to say that every vote doesn't count. So people should definitely check it out and, and make their voice heard. Absolutely. There are plenty to choose from here. Get your ballots in now. Okay. You can vote and then you can move on to what do you give that space fan, that space geek in your life as the uh, holidays approach. And uh, that's the other thing that you've been working on. Tell us about the gift guide. So this is another longer standing tradition of the Planetary Society that around the end of November, beginning of December, we, we try to put out a gift guide of space themed gifts. These are things that if you are the space fan in your community or in your family, you can ask people to give you these things. Or if you have folks in your life who love space as much as you do, you can give to them. Or perhaps you have people who you want to love space as much as you do. So these can be things to encourage people in your life to get a little bit more interested in the cosmos. The way that we compile the gift guide every year changes. So in the past, we've reached out to scientists and engineers in the space community and ask them for their favorite gift ideas. In the past, we've also had Planetary Society staff contribute our own ideas. This year, we're opening it up the widest we've ever had it. So asking anybody, our members, our uh, audiences, um, so PlanRad listeners, social media followers, anyone who is in our community is welcome to share their ideas for things that they think should be added to our gift guide. So it's a very broad call for ideas. Ideally, we're looking for things that people can buy online so that it's you know very accessible to people. But in general, any idea that somebody has is welcome. Um, and we'll be curating the best of the best and releasing the gift guide uh, in just a, a few weeks. I am about to... Uh 
submit my uh, choices for this year. One of them's pretty expensive. I can tell you it's Andy Chaikin's this fantastic edition of his uh, uh, classic, uh, A Man on the Moon, his classic book, I should say, that uh, two-volume set that we talked about uh, with Andy not too long ago on Planetary Radio. But that's a definitely a high-end gift. I got to come up with a low-end one as well. And, but I'll get my submissions in. How can other people access this? It's really a Google form. And uh, let us know what they suggest. Yes. So if you want to contribute your ideas, you can go to planet.ly slash gift. So that's our URL shortener, planetly, planet.ly slash gift. And anytime in the next couple of weeks, you can submit your idea. If it makes the cut, you'll see it in our gift guide that is coming out November 22nd. Okay, not too long to wait. And give us that URL once again where people can uh, vote for the best of 2021 from the Planetary Society. That is planetary.org slash best of 2021. And then for the gift guide again, planet.ly slash gift. So we want to hear from you. We want to hear your favorites, whether they're space images or space swag. <laughs> Both great. Thank you, Kate. That was a great uh, introduction to these. Uh, get them while they're hot, folks. That's Kate Howells, my colleague at the Planetary Society. Thanks again, Kate. Thanks, Matt. Her Excellency Sarah Bint Yusuf Alamiri is the United Arab Emirates Minister of State for Advanced Technology. She is also now chairwoman of that nation's space agency, also chairwoman of the Emirates Scientist Council, and chairwoman of the UAE Council for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and chairwoman of the Dubai Future Academy Board of Trustees. So it may not be surprising that this aerospace engineer and computer scientist was named a 2020 laureate in the BBC's 100 Women series or that she was named by Time magazine as a 2021 Time 100 Next honoree. And I wasn't surprised when she was part of the announcement made on October 5th of a mission that will explore seven asteroids in the main belt between Mars and Jupiter. She joined me a few days ago from the UAE. Sarah, welcome back to Planetary Radio. It is a great honor to uh, have you back with us on our show to talk about Something very, very ambitious. My goodness, it has been less than a, a year and a half since the Emirates Mars mission, the Hope Probe, was launched. I wonder if you have caught some people by surprise by the announcement of this even more ambitious new mission when it was made less than a month ago. I hope we didn't. I think it was a natural continuation on our exploration mission and on our advent to develop our science technology sector overall with focus on space. Is there a name for this new mission to the main asteroid belt? Not at the moment. We're calling it the mission to the asteroid belt. <laughs> um, as we move forward and get a better understanding of the mission concept, the science that we'll be doing, the objectives, um, I believe a name will come to fruition from there. I'm sure it will. Here's a portion of what you said when this new mission was announced. As we speak, still less than a month, a month ago, this requires leaps in imagination, in faith, and the pursuit of goals that go beyond prudent or methodical. That implies that this mission will be quite a bit more of a challenge than putting hope in orbit around Mars. Is that how you see it? Yes, um, it was naturally selected from several missions that were in the concept phase. 
because of the challenge that it poses. It uses enough of our knowledge from the Emirates Mars mission while still putting us in a good, uncomfortable place to develop more <laughs> uh, capabilities. And the science is quite challenging. The scientific mission is five years. We're technically roaming around the solar system Yes. Uh, to, be, to be able to fly by the seven asteroids. There is a nice gravity assist by Venus where we'll be doing some observations there. So overall, it's a, it was a nice sweet spot for challenges versus scientific impact versus technological advancement. Won't you also be doing a flyby of Earth, a little gravity assist uh, uh, at our home world as well? Yes, absolutely. So that will be the second flyby that we're going by. And it's just, it was very interesting for us to go from going on a direct line from Earth to Mars to going from Earth to Venus, I think back to Earth again, to the asteroid belt a few times over, uh, visiting seven asteroids. Uh, we're really excited now as we're working on the science objectives to uh, learn more about the wonders of the asteroids in our solar system. And we have a lot to learn. Our, our audience heard us recently talking with the leaders of the Lucy mission, which, as you know, is on its way to explore those asteroids that share Jupiter's orbit, the so-called Trojan asteroids. But I don't think that there has been a mission yet that is going to visit seven, count them, seven main belt asteroids, all with one spacecraft. That really is ambitious. That is ambitious, but it's very important to understand asteroids more closely and the asteroid belt more closely, not only to get an a better understanding of the formation of planets within our solar system, but to also better understand the role that the asteroid belt will play in the future of exploration. We talk a lot on the show about how asteroids may be able to tell us more about the origin, about how we came to be in this in this solar system, and it looks like that is very much one of your goals. Absolutely, and and we're delving now into the details. Considering when we're launching in 2028, it's the right time that will allow us to be complementary to the Lucy mission, complementary to other missions that are going to different asteroids. We're building our requirements around that to ensure that we are meeting a sweet spot when it comes to data, very similar to the approach that we took on the Emirates-Mars mission. I recognize that you're, this is still in the very early uh, days of this, this mission. When do you think we may know more about your science goals and about the instruments that, uh, that this new uh, spacecraft will carry? Considering the pace that we're going through at the moment, uh, the first half of next year is looking very promising for us to get a better understanding of the science objectives and also the instrumentation that will be on board uh, and a potential for having also technology demonstrators on board the spacecraft. As you said, you're planning a 2028 uh, launch. With everything that this probe is going to do, those two flybys, Venus and Earth, seven asteroids, I find it kind of amazing that you're going to be able to accomplish all this in just five years. The solar system is a big place. Is this a fast spacecraft or are these asteroids reasonably close together? How does this work? They're not per se close to each other, but in terms of the time that we're launching, utilizing uh, Venus, selecting the right asteroids in terms of the speed by which they're traveling relative to the spacecraft, we're able to manage this the design of it to be within the five years timeline, five years time frame. Uh, it's really interesting now to start 
placing together which asteroids were going to exactly together with the spacecraft's performance together with uh, fitting it into the timeline and um, this is work that's currently undergoing between our mission designers our science team and our spacecraft designers it's looking it's it's looking feasible as it did when we were doing the feasibility of this mission and now that we have a better understanding of of sort of what we want to do it's still looking feasible within the 5 year time frame we haven't yet talked about the thrilling finish that you have planned for this mission could you do that now yes the seventh asteroid we will be attempting a landing on it uh, we are looking at different mechanisms to land on asteroids and one of the underlying aspects and, and you mentioned that the asteroid belt remains largely uncharted uh, we've studied asteroids from Earth or from from Earth-based telescopes and also from space-based telescopes, uh, with very few missions that have studied perhaps a few asteroids up close. What you see in the images that comes from telescopes is go is vastly different from what you're going to see up close to these asteroids. And better understanding how to study those asteroids also lies on how you would develop different landing mechanisms on, mm. on them, considering how difficult it is and how hard it is to, to build a mission that will go to, to, to an asteroid where you might have, for example, boulders lying around and it will affect your mechanism of landing. That, for me, is an interesting part of this mission where you're able to demonstrate a form of technology to enable landing on asteroids. We have learned just in the last couple of years just how challenging it can be to land on an asteroid. Or I, I imagine that you're very glad to have be able to learn from those experiences. Yes, and we've actually looked at those experiences and various other experiences and concepts of landing on asteroids to be able to better determine what is the right mechanism to do it from our end. So. We will continue exploration. I, I don't think we'll be the only mission that will be doing this, but perhaps we can add on uh, to our understanding. Either it's it's a success or a challenge that comes to be on how to uh, land on an asteroid and conduct uh, scientific um, observations while doing that. You know, I, if you ignore Lucy which is going to take some time to uh, reach uh, the asteroids that it will be visiting, it only now just occurred to me that with this single mission, you may be doubling, or roughly, uh, the number of asteroids that we've actually uh, visited, that we've had a close-up look at. And, you know, what we've learned so far is that while they may share some characteristics, each of them that we've visited so far has been unique. We, we seem to have a lot to learn. Absolutely. And we're, we're really glad we were able to fit the number of asteroids that we did within the mission timeframe, within the timeline and, and budget consideration, and then the technical challenges, uh, because it's important to add on to that body of knowledge. You're going to be partnering, once again, I read, uh, with uh, those folks at LASP, the Laboratory for Atmospheric Science and Physics at the University of Colorado Boulder. I guess that's, I guess that's evidence of how successful this partnership has been so far. Yes, it is. It's it's an evidence of how successful a U.S.-UAE partnership has come to be and an international partnership in space exploration. That's not necessarily your typical agency-to-agency -agency partnership. Uh, we'll continue on this partnership because largely this leverages quite, quite a lot on 
knowledge that has been developed from the Emirates Mars mission, some designs that have been developed on the Emirates Mars mission. So we're leveraging mm. on the overall EMM team to be able to successfully achieve this mission. We talked in July of last year about how the Emirates Mars mission would fulfill its mission of hope, which is largely drove this that mission. And I'm wondering if you have the same goal for this new mission. We're at a different place as a region um, than we were with the Emirates Mars mission. I believe the region is a slightly more stable than it was when we started mm. with the Emirates Mars mission in 2000, late 2013. And there is a better understanding on the role that science and technology plays in creating opportunities. Space and just the arrival of Mars has brought the region together uh, in February of this year. And we're seeing more and more interest from the region, more and more players entering into it, creating those necessary opportunities. So hope created the necessary impact that it was going to create. What this is going to provide for us as a region is a a second entry point into the global space sector um, with the space industry. And this is something that is underlying this mission as one of the objectives is creating space capabilities within the private sector in the country to be able to feed into uh, the overall region. That's exactly what I was hoping to go to next, which is that you you hope that this will stimulate uh, industry in the UAE, which has been largely focused in other areas, uh, to look, well, basically to look toward the heavens. Absolutely. And and this is one of the underlying reasons of doing this. We've de- we've been able to transfer know-how and capabilities to our existing space sector, but largely that resides within research institutions and agencies. Uh, the next step is actually transferring that to create not, not the spillover economic and social effect only, but also create a direct economic impact. And by that, we need to build capabilities in companies, allow for startups to be created in the space sector, um, and be able to build a form of a space economy within the country and within the region. And we're using this mission as a mechanism, again, to catalyze development of capabilities in the private sector. There are other elements to the international collaborations that I, I suppose this may represent. I noted, and this is not to say that this mission will necessarily do this, but I saw a separate news story that said the UAE is looking at collaboration with India and its launch vehicles uh, as possible rockets that might carry, uh, if not this mission, perhaps others. Is that something that the UAE is actively investigating, uh, looking at the capabilities of other nations? So we are looking, it isn't India per se, but we are looking at the capabilities of uh, various countries to be able to have a more connected space sector. Um, we're not going down the path of developing a space sector onto itself and within the country itself. It needs to leverage uh, benefits from the UAE's perspective, but still fit into the global value chain, which means mm. that we need to continue fostering relationships. We have great relationships with Russia um, for, for launch. Uh, we have great relationships with Japan, as we saw on the back of this mission. We're establishing launch uh, relationships now with the United States through SpaceX. Um, and mm. moving forward in terms of the overall agency to agency collaboration, we've seen very good collaboration with France. That enables us to create a, a very robust, multi-element um, approach to developing our space sector on this mission and also on future missions. But underlying that, what that creates, it, it creates the necessary demand 
for the UAE space sector from a global perspective, because you're not able to make a play into a sector that has been around for several decades unless you're part of it globally. More of my conversation with Sarah Alamiri is moments away. Stay with us. From missions arriving at Mars to new frontiers in human spaceflight, 2021 has been an exciting year for space science and exploration. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. What were your favorite moments? You can cast your vote right now at planetary.org slash best of 2021 and help choose the year's best space images, mission milestones, memes, and more. That's planetary.org slash best of 2021. Thanks. Speaking of Japan, if we can move away from this new asteroid mission, and I hope that we'll be able to check back with you and others as the mission comes together uh, in the coming years. We have a few before it launches, reaches that 2028 launch date. There are a couple of others that I was hoping to ask you about. We had not talked about uh, in our previous conversations about uh, a lunar rover, which is uh, going to be launching much, much sooner. Can you tell us a little bit about Rashid? So she will be flying on the iSpace um, lunar vehicle that will take it to the surface of the moon. That's a private sector endeavor happening out of Japan. Um, that's going to push, I think, the, the iSpace concept is going to push accessibility to space quite differently if it's successful next year and on its maiden voyage to the moon's surface. Um, Russia Rover is a technology demonstrator that will fly on that lunar um, lander and um, hopefully provide a new venue for entrants to be part of the space exploration um, play. So hats off to, to iSpace for, for creating uh, such a, a venue to be able to enable technology demonstration. And I should have said, I know that this that this particular mission is not one that you are as directly involved with. But if we turn now to HOPE, the Emirates-Mars mission, I think I counted something like seven jobs or assignments or appointments that you have, and one of them continues to be science lead for that mission, which is meeting with such tremendous success at Mars. Can you give us an idea of the current status of, uh, of the spacecraft and the science that it's doing? So the spacecraft is operating nominally um, around Mars, collecting the necessary scientific data that we require to be able to get a full picture of the weather system of Mars and also give us a better understanding of atmospheric escape. We've gotten two interesting observations that we will continue to observe that will eventually lead to good scientific findings and a better bettering our understanding of the atmosphere of Mars. The first is the observations of the discrete auroras, which we actually didn't expect. We didn't design our, our instrument to, to observe it per se. It wasn't within our science objectives, but we are getting it uh, with our current observation mechanisms. And that that's interesting to understand how that evolves um, throughout a Martian year, throughout the seasons of Mars. The second is an observation that our science team thought at the very beginning that it was a glitch in the instrument, and that's uh, higher than expected levels of uh, oxygen in mm. the upper atmosphere of Mars. Uh, and that continues to be interesting because the models don't indicate those levels of, of oxygen. Of course, that's not a drastic amount. A lot of people ask us, so can we breathe on Mars? No, Mars <laughs> is still primarily made up of carbon dioxide. We cannot breathe on Mars it's in comparison minute differences, but it's significant when you look at the 
um, actual volume of um, oxygen that's meant to that that we theorize to be in the atmosphere. So that's an interesting observation that the science team continues to look at. Thankfully, our instrument was not glitching. And just to correct on one aspect, um, due to conflict of interest, I've had to actually step down from my role as science lead um, because I lead the space agency. So that happened um, in August last year. I did not know that. I did see uh, someone needs to correct a page on the website because it still lists you as science lead there. So apologies for that. Uh, but obviously still quite interested in the success and the performance of this spacecraft. How is the spacecraft it's, itself? Is it healthy? Is it holding up well? The spacecraft is holding up well um, within the nominal um, challenges that you would face being around another pan planet. Nothing serious on, on our end. Data is being captured as expected. So th that's always good from the larger perspective of things because we need to collect the full Martian year worth of data. So that's still uh, good and underway. Spacecraft performance overall even looks good. So what I'm looking at is the chance for an extended mission. So spacecraft mm. performance looks good as of now for an extended mission. We're hoping um, and managing actually the performance of the spacecraft to be able to even extend that beyond the lifetime that it was designed for, which is usually natural. Um, for such missions. So it, it's really exciting times uh, for us. We've put the data out uh, for public release. And uh, surprisingly enough, within the first 10 days, two terabytes worth of data was downloaded. Wow. Um, and, it, and it shows a large interest in, in the data of this mission. You have once again beaten me to my next question, which was about that public release of data, which is now open to the scientific community around the world. Congratulations on that discovery of the O2, the oxygen in the upper atmosphere, which does not fit our previous models. It's always great, certainly a sign of success, when a mission says, wait a minute, that's not how things are, and theories have to be revised. That really is uh, is exciting stuff, as is that stunning image, or really three images, of those auroras above the red planet, which we will put on uh, the episode page at planetary.org slash radio so that people can, can take a look at those. For the future, I mean, you said, yes, you're continuing the work to understand the Martian atmosphere. Are there specific areas of inquiry within that that HOPE is looking into? So the, the weather system is going to trigger some interest to the science team as they continue observing uh, the data. I think they've been busy throughout the first few months of this mission to ensure that the data is processed and ready for public release. Uh, now that that's settled, they're looking at uh, particular areas of interest that are popping up from the data uh, because, as you've noted, uh, the area of science that we're doing is considered noble science. We have theories about it, but there hasn't been this extensive uh, amount of data collected about it. So let's see what the first publication coming up from the science team will hold for us. Here's another question that has only just occurred to me. Uh, we know that periodically, semi-regularly, we see these planet-wide dust storms on Mars. And while they may not be something to look forward to if you're a rover, I wonder if uh, a, a mission like EMM, like HOPE, you might actually kind of be hoping for that so that we could maybe gain some understanding of what causes these gigantic storms. We're really hoping for a global dust storm. Uh, we're, we're sorry to the rover teams that are out there, but we're very well positioned to fit in vital gaps of knowledge 
the last global global dust storm actually proved the need for the Emirates Mars mission and the whole probe around Mars. Uh, so we're really hoping, fingers crossed, that we get a global dust storm on Mars so we're able to monitor it comprehensively. Let me turn to a, a slightly more personal question. I already mentioned that I counted seven jobs or appointments or assignments that you have uh, within all of this work that you do. When do you find time to sleep? Very late at night, but it's just, <laughs> it's, it's exciting work overall. Um, uh, working on space, working on science and tech for the country, bringing together policies, transforming, creating things that didn't exist in a country, I think, and creating opportunities for the long run is very important personal goal for me. Um, and I, I don't see it as appointments and jobs. It's just another day. And generating hope and uh, cause for inspiration. I wonder about how that element of the hope mission in particular uh, has continued to provide these sources of inspiration, especially for young people uh, in in the Middle East and, and specifically in the UAE. Quite extensively, especially in, it, it was very palpable in February when we arrived uh, to Mars uh, and continues to be so. In a form of way this mission has normalized, talking about science, technology, exploration, research, things that weren't very well understood just a year ago hmm. uh, became normal dialogue that you hear people talking about. Um, exploration features quite extensively right now in, in the words that you see children speaking about, their aspirations. They want to be astronauts. They want to be physicists. Uh, scientists, um, some people want to be space chefs, <laughs> and and it's created quite a large impact and influence on the overall, on an entire generation within the country. A moment for me that was very interesting and, and quite heartwarming was when I saw families from several generations speaking about science, talking about what kind of science the Emirates Mars mission is going to do. It's just it's created quite a large shift that is very hard for me to describe hmm. in terms of inspiration and, and what, it's, uh, what it's created in terms of impact. But it's somewhat made my job easier in terms of, of bringing that full understanding of what impact space creates, what impact technology creates, why it's important for the country, why it's important for our future. I also wonder if you think about your own role as a role model, especially for young women in the, in the UAE, because I, I suspect that you are very much uh, seen that way by, by many of these young people. I don't think about it. I, I hope that um, young people within the UAE have various anchors uh, to be able to create the necessary opportunities that they're passionate about. Growing up, I didn't have that wide of a field of opportunity open. I'm really glad that my, my children live at a time here in the country where the window of opportunity is far and wide that allows them to, to create what they're passionate about. Thank you very much. Uh, you have so efficiently answered all of my questions that we are, we actually, I have nothing to add, but I wonder if you have anything that you'd like to say that we may have missed about uh, these ambitious efforts underway and about to get it, getting underway uh, by the UAE. I think your questions have 
comprehensively covered um, everything that's happening today. Looking forward to future conversations, though, Matt. Absolutely, always. Thank you so much once again. Thank you, Matt. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. I am here with the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That's Bruce Betts. Did you miss me while I was on vacation? Oh, I missed you so much, Matt. There was a hole in my heart. Life wasn't the same. No, seriously, you were gone? (laughs) Well, not so the audience would notice, at least although I did say it during the show. Hey, thank you, everybody who sent me such nice uh, vacation wishes. Uh, It really was a a wonderful, wonderful vacation. And I even snuck a piece of it into my uh, newsletter, if you want to Check that out. Uh, it's I, I kind of opened with a, an actual experience, uh, watching a little chipmunk run along the edge of a forest from the uh, uh, <laughs> home that we stayed in uh, with relatives in Cape Cod, and and relating that to cosmic life. That was oh was, okay. I was, I was just I yeah. thought you were just tripping on chipmunks. <laughs> well, you could do that too. Is this your small mammal newsletter or the <laughs> surely it's not the planetary radio <laughs> newsletter? No, no, man. You gave it away. The small mammal newsletter doesn't premiere until next month. Sign me up <laughs> and my dog. Yeah, I'll do that. He's not a small mammal though. I've seen your dog. What what's going on in the night sky? <sighs> Sorry everyone. We had we have some catching up to do. We should do it offline. <laughs> night sky evening. I don't know whether on your vacation or otherwise you've noticed, Matt, but Venus stupid bright over yeah. in the west in the early evening. Very cool. And what's exciting is we've got the other bright object, Jupiter as well as its friend to the lower right, Saturn. Remember, they used to be in the technically the other part of the sky? Well, now they'll be getting closer and closer over the next month or so to Venus in this nice planet lineup. So go from Venus, look to the upper left, you'll see Saturn looking dimmer and yellowish, and then bright Jupiter, and they're just going to get closer, and it's going to be cool. But wait, don't order yet. I've also lined up a crescent moon to go hang out with Venus on the 7th of November. And with Jupiter on the 11th, Saturn in between. Uh, If you don't like your planet viewing to be easy, then look in the pre-dawn. In the pre-dawn east, you have a challenge. We'll need a very low view to the horizon. But Mercury's there and Mars starting to make its its approach in the the pre-dawn sky. They'll actually be very close to each other on the 10th, but very low to the horizon in the eastern direction. Uh, that's that's my exciting planet news for you, Matt. Venus was a, a constant uh, friend over our vacation, and uh, it's still up there. It just keeps hanging on. Yeah, weird. So anyway, we move on to this week in space history. It was uh, 2013 that the India's Mars Orbiter mission launched. MOM produced some beautiful pictures and other data from Mars. Now we move on to random space facts. Neutron stars, Matt, they're weird. They're small, despite having 1.4 solar masses in each one. They're only about 10 kilometers in diameter, which means, I know you were wondering this, you could fit over 250 million neutron stars inside the volume of the Earth. Wow. Ignoring what would happen if you did that. But yeah, it's weird. They're weird things. I'm not going to remember the exact equivalent, but I know it's like I read somewhere. It's like one teaspoonful of uh, neutron star material 
would weigh I don't know how much it was. It's it's mind-boggling. Well, well, the the standard random space fact that I'm sure I used years ago, which is why I didn't do it, is that a teaspoon of neutron star weighs about the same as all of humanity. <laughs> so there you go. You squished us all into a <laughs> teaspoon. Ow. Bonus random space fact. Bonus RSF, and I am so glad to hear it. It's uh, Now I know I'm back home. Oh, welcome. <sighs> okay, we move on to the trivia contest. We have two, two, not one, but two trivia contests to answer for you. In the first one, I asked you what major political event in the USSR happened during the 24-hour-long Voskhod 1 mission. What happened, Matt? Well, I'll tell you what happened. We got a huge response. I don't know why. Just a lot of fans of uh, the Soviet Union out there, I guess, the former Soviet <laughs> Union. Uh, this was this question was posed in our October 6 program. And here is the answer hidden in the verse from uh, Dave Fairchild, our poet laureate in Kansas. The Voskhod spacecraft went to space in 1964. It had three suitless cosmonauts all rather cramped on board. Though only gone a day and change, when they came back, they found that Khrushchev had been eased aside by Brezhnev on the ground. Nikita Khrushchev, bye. Yep, Brezhnev took over during that 24 hours. And uh, as people may have mentioned, I guess his first public event as leader was welcoming the cosmonauts back. Fascinating. You got to wonder what was going through those astronauts' uh, minds when this happened. We heard from several other people that uh, it was later that a crew on the Mir space station uh, went up, left the Soviet Union, and came back to the Russian Republic. <laughs> Even bigger change, I guess. Uh, here's a big change. Kay Gilbert, who has been listening for a long, long time from Southern California, I believe this is her first time win. Congratulations, Kay. She said, yep, it was uh, Khrushchev who uh, got knocked out of power by Leonid Brezhnev with some help from uh, Alexei Kosygin, I believe. So, Kay, we're going to send you that rubber asteroid. I can do better. I'm out of practice. Rubber asteroid, uh, kick asteroid. There you go. From the Planetary Society. I got more good stuff for this one. Uh, another uh, little poem, this one from Stephanie Letourneau from... Uh, Nevada. While Voskhod 1 was up and away on October 12th, the fateful day, a devious plan was underway with Nikita Khrushchev on a vacay. He had no idea, so full of naivete. But back in Moscow, members voted yay for his removal from office straight away. It's <laughs> <laughs> clever. I like it. Uh, Jean-Marc Bernard in Switzerland. You have to know a little bit of history for this one. He said, the other shoe dropped on the shoe banger. Oh. <laughs> and then from Kent Murley in Washington, a Leonid storm arrived a month early. <laughs> Finally, this for this one from Edwin King, who uh, this is fascinating. I didn't check it out, but I trust you, Edwin, in the UK who says that another more minor thing that happened was the death of the Marshal of the Soviet Union and Chief of the General Staff, Sergei Beryusov, I think, was killed in a plane crash on the 19th of October, 1964. Here's the point of all this. The plane that crashed was the same one that had brought the cosmonauts to Baikonur. Pretty scary stuff. He adds, by the way, Edwin does, what I love about these questions is that they invariably lead to something new and interesting. Thanks, Bruce. 
Oh, you're welcome. That's good to hear. We're ready for the next one. This was the uh, question that you asked in our, on October 13 in that episode. Yes, indeed you do. And uh, I asked it about a mission that when we recorded hadn't launched yet, but now has launched the Lucy mission. Most of the asteroids to be visited by Lucy are Trojan asteroids named after characters in Homer's Iliad. And I asked you, but what two objects to be visited by Lucy are named after real people? Tell us, Matt, how'd we do? Well, I won't, but Gene Lewin, another one of our regular uh, poetic uh, contributors, he's up in Washington. Here's the answer from Gene. When Lucy goes out for her stroll, she'll circle back to say hello, using Earth to assist her trip, but she's always on the go, dropping by Johansson's crib, sort of a dress rehearsal, then off to Jupiter's Trojan friends, a mythological dispersal, then past Eurybates' satellite, Keta is its name, honoring Enriqueta Basilio, who lit the 68 Olympic flame. Did, did he get that right? Yes, indeed he did. Indeed he did. Indeed he do. Indeed he, <laughs> never mind. Uh, yes, we have uh, Donald Johansson, named after the person who discovered the Lucy fossil in Ethiopia, and uh, Keta, a nickname for, as you just said, the track runner from Mexico that lit the cauldron in 1968, becoming the first woman to light the Olympic cauldron. Lucy, the uh, Australopithecine. That, of course, was uh, largely the uh, inspiration for the name of this mission, as we heard on this show just a few weeks ago. Uh, but a lot of people were not able to find uh, Keta. Yeah, that was, tri- that was tricky because it's, uh, it's a moon of another asteroid, so it doesn't, may not have popped to the forefront as easily. Yeah, pretty tiny, apparently. One person who did find it, our regular entrant, Daniel Kazard in the UK. Uh, and Daniel has not won in almost two years, uh, but he did win this time. So congratulations, Daniel, who also, did you get to see the the, the uh, cool little cartoon he sent us? It's a little, almost a post, but the, the Adventures of Percy and Ginny. I was very entertained. Yes, with uh, Martian rocks and the named for what... Uh the perception of what they looked like. Yes, there were very, some very funny answers. I think we'll put this image up on the show page if we can. So uh, you'll be able to find it there at planetary.org slash radio for this uh, this week's episode, the November 3rd episode. Uh, again, congratulations, Daniel. We are also going to send you a Planetary Society kick asteroid rubber Asteroid. So uh, congratulations to both of our winners today. We're now back on the regular schedule. What do you have for next time? Who was the first chimpanzee to orbit Earth? The first chimpanzee to orbit Earth. Go to planetary.org slash radio. Okay, they were supposed to be chimpanzees in the capsule that Bing Crosby and Bob Hope were brought up into space in, in the road movie. Uh, yeah, well, is- way to give away the answer. I mean, I guess that's where people are going to have to dig in to find. <laughs> that's still, I, 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 was, I saw it as a kid, and a lot of the humor is better suited for kids, but I still think of it as incredibly funny. There was an automatic banana feeding machine that goes haywire and is stuffing bananas in the faces of these two big stars. It was great fun. <laughs> we, we should get an automatic banana machine or two. Oh, man, yeah, I'd love that, except that, I'm allergic to bananas. I'll watch you try it. I get twice as many. 
Oh, I didn't tell you that uh, you have until November 10th. That'd be Wednesday, 8 a.m., November 10th, to get us this answer. And now I, I have a special prize. I have a shirt that I got while we were passing through Maine from Blue Shift Aerospace. This is a little rocket company in Maine, on the coast of the state of Maine, in the, in what we call New England here. They are building uh, as green a rocket as you probably can find any place. And I was so intrigued by this company that I bought one of their shirts. And they have kindly volunteered to donate one to one of you. It's a very clever sort of a half sleeve uh, shirt that says Blue Shift Aerospace, fresh Maine rockets, <laughs> as opposed to lobster, as most people say. Anyway, that shirt will uh, go to um, whoever gets it right and is chosen by random.org this time around. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky and think about what you need to do to not slip on a banana peel. Thank you. <laughs> Good night. Yeah, but then you'll be denying so much enjoyment to the rest of us. Uh, he's Bruce Betts, <laughs> who brings us great enjoyment each week as the chief scientist of the Planetary Society when he joins us for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members, who are all primates. Stop monkeying around. Become one of us at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.